Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse Turning in our Bibles to Mark chapter 10, we'll begin in verse 32 in just a moment. How many of you have heard about, raise your hands if you've heard about the revival that's happening right now at Asbury University, raise your hands high so I know how how the news has spread, okay, you've heard of it, I'm not going to... The only thing I'm going to say about it is, because I believe it's it's a work of God, God is doing it. Um, I haven't been there. I'm not going to give a big endorsement for it. I'm certainly not going to criticize it in a way that would uh, say anything bad about it. That... So, but one thing I heard this week that was very interesting and is consistent with what I already understand about revival, and that is I heard about the prayer that had been happening there. And there have been other, historically, other huge revivals at Asbury University. And... Again, I'm not here to critique them. I'm simply saying I heard testimony of how much prayer is done there by faculty members, by people who walk the streets and pray. And I think biblically we, we should all agree that like before the day of Pentecost, the disciples were all together in one mind praying. That prayer is a prerequisite to revival, even personal individual revival. Revival happens here every Sunday, I believe. Revival happens in me every day when I'm doing my devotions and going to be with the Lord and I'm praying. So prayer is a prerequisite for any kind of revival. Um, So as I was thinking about that, processing that, reading through my devotions, uh, went through the Gospel of Mark recently, and then now I'm in Luke, and so many things are overlapping with what we were studying or what I was studying in Mark. And I think we would all agree that the Bible teaches the power of prayer. We, everybody agree with that, right? The Bible teaches the necessity of prayer. The Bible teaches that, however, there are also some conflicting, almost apparently contradictory teachings in the Bible about prayer that can cause confusion. And if it causes confusion in our minds, then I think it causes dysfunction in our prayers. And so as I came to this passage, some things jumped out at me as I studied it and as I'm going to unpack it for you this morning, I think we're all going to see that there's a whole bunch of stuff in it and something may be more important for you than for somebody else here. So we'll just trust the Holy Spirit to bring to us whatever revelation he wants to and then uh, apply it to our lives by giving us the grace that each one of us needs, the exact colored grace that each one of us needs. So there should be something in here for everybody. So let's turn to Mark chapter 10. And before we read the passage, go back to chapter 8, verse 31. I want to show you two verses, 831 and 931, before we get into chapter 10. In 831... 
Now this is Jesus spending time with his disciples, going about the countryside, preaching the gospel, doing his miracles. This is his three-year earthly ministry. He's getting toward the end of it. So in chapter 8, verse 31, we read, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's him, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now he was stating the matter plainly. I mean, what about that don't we understand? So then Peter rebukes him. And then it goes through that whole exchange where Peter's like, you, you, that can't happen to you, Lord. That, that's not the way it's going to go down. Okay, go over to chapter 9, verse 31. And he was teaching his disciples and telling them, it's the same gospel within two chapters. And he was telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. Again, what about that don't you understand? What's not plain about that? Well, look at the next verse. But they did not understand this statement. And they were afraid to ask him. It's one thing for us who know the end of the story and we've got it and we've heard it all our lives to look back at them and say they should have understood. Why didn't they understand? And really uh, harshly criticize them for their responses to Jesus. And so... Just keep that in mind. They did not understand as we move into chapter 10, then verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Now, this is real close to the end of Jesus before he's crucified. And Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. Why? Because they didn't understand. Jesus has been teaching them some really hard things. And they, did, they were not able to connect the dots yet. And so they were amazed and somewhat fearful. Because this is kind of, he's saying some kind of scary stuff. And they, they're not sure what is going to happen. So then he took the twelve and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Saying... Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit upon him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Now that is helpful for us to prepare, to prepare, to understand that you don't understand something until you understand it. And the, the reality of his suffering had not sunk in yet. And their response, in some cases, like Peter's case, for instance, it was all hypothetical. It was, in, in the garden, Peter said, even if they, or at the Last Supper, Peter said, even if they kill you, I, I'm, I'm ready to die for you. And Jesus just knew he didn't get it. 
And so Peter, right up until he was at the fire with Jesus, already arrested, that he, he, he had fled earlier, then he kind of followed back, saw them start to beat Jesus, saw what was really going to happen, and that's when it all fell apart. That's what made a coward out of Peter. At the actual moment when it's happening is when our faith is put to the test. It's All of us can talk big while we're here. All of us can say, well, if this happens to me, then I'll act like this. That's all hypotheses. So that if we can grasp that, that will help us explain what happens next. So look at verse 35. So now James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, come up to Jesus and saying to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, watch these words, because we're going to come to these exact words later in the passage. Jesus says to them, what do you want me to do for you? That's a question. Isn't that a question Jesus is asking all of us all the time? What do you want me to do for you? You just woke up. See the sun shining. It's going to be a beautiful day. Jesus is asking, what do you want me to do for you? How can I help? What, what do you want from me? Because we need him today. We need him for everything. So it, it's a great question. What do you want me to do for you? Now let's look at their answer. And they said to him, verse 37, Grant that we may sit in your glory, one on your right and one on your left. That's, if you're the king, that's your first, first place, second place man. Okay, Place of honor. Now, to us, we would say, why in the world would you ask that question when he just told you he was going to suffer and die? It's because they don't understand. Their understanding is incomplete about what that might look like. So they're thinking, okay, well, yeah, he's going to die. He's going to rise. You know, that's bad, but then he's going to be king, and then there's going to be me. What about me? And they said to him, again, grant this. And so, so let's ask ourselves, uh, talk about our will for us. What is our will for us? What is your will for you? And please just relax and humbly consider what I'm talking about, what what comes up in this passage. Really ask yourself some honest questions. And don't jump to the Sunday school answers immediately. We all know that there's a better answer, but really, what's going on in your heart? Jesus is asking us, what do you want me to do for you? Because he wants to do things for us. He has done everything for us that we need to be saved. He has done everything. He wants to lavish grace upon us. He wants to help us. He wants us to be happy. So what what do you want me to do for you? Now, isn't this our will for us? Just... Just relax. Success? Is there anybody in here who doesn't want success? Is there anybody in here who doesn't go into a basketball game or a wrestling match or to your grandkids' basketball game or whatever? Don't we go to all these things wanting success? Don't we want a healthy baby? Of course we do. Don't we want it to go well for our wives in those situations? Of course we do. Our will for us is for things to go well. Success. Isn't our will for us, and, and I know this, it gets off, but isn't it self-service? Isn't it, we, we want what we want. Provide for me, Lord. Give me, a, give me money to pay my 
grocery bill and my heating bill. And uh, Lord, serve me. Help me. And isn't our will for us seldom suffering? Like, I know I'm going to suffer. I know there's going to be hard times. But Lord, if thy will, if it's your will, please make it easy on me. Make it not so hard I can't handle it. We don't naturally want to suffer. Okay? Now, given that 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 is what we want, that's what James and John wanted, I can understand that. I can relate to that. They didn't understand everything fully. I can relate to that. And so, and there are certain scriptures, like chapter 11, so go over to chapter 11 for a moment. And let's look at verses 22 through 25. There are certain verses, teachings in the Bible that lead us to believe, that seem to support this, that it's okay for me to ask Jesus for success and and for the things that I want and for uh, minimal suffering. So look at 11.22. Jesus answered and said to them, because the fig tree had just withered. He put a curse on the fig tree. They walked by it just, and they were amazed by that. And Jesus said, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart. So if you have faith, but believes, that's, what, that's the word for faith, that what he says is going to happen, it shall be granted to him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they shall be granted you. So let's stop there. That passage seems to teach that the answer to my prayers, when I respond to Jesus, what do you want me to do for you? And I come up with something that for me will look successful and spare me from suffering and and will serve my desires, that that's okay as long as I believe that faith is the big determining factor. And faith is super important. But as we proceed, we're going to try to figure out what role faith has and really whose will is going to determine what actually happens. So just hold that kind of intention. But my point here is that certain verses seem to support this. And so uh, what we want, So let's continue reading then. So Jesus said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, uh, verse 37, Grant that we may sit on your, one on your right, one on your left, But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Now the cup in the Bible can be the cup of salvation. It's to experience something. I I can experience salvation. Or in this case, he's referring to the cup that frequently in the Old Testament was the, the cup of God's wrath. The cup of God's fury. Trouble. Suffering. Jesus has just predicted his death. He said, are you willing to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? He's talking about dying on the cross. And they said, are you, are you willing to, to be baptized with the baptism with which I am going to be baptized? Now, baptism here means a deluge of suffering. To have trouble poured out upon, to be immersed in this experience of God's wrath. Are you willing to do that? 
Now, again, they don't know what they're talking about, but here's what they say. They said to him, verse 39, yeah, yep, we're ready, we're able. And Jesus said to them, you know what? The cup that I drink, you will drink. James, in a short period of time after my resurrection, you're going to have your head cut off by the Romans. That's going to happen to you because you're a Christian. He says, yeah, you will drink the cup that I drink. You will be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But what you asked of me to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. Then hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. They didn't understand what Jesus said about his suffering. They didn't understand his answer to James and John. They didn't understand any of that stuff. They got angry at James and John, felt indignant with James and John. Why? Because their will for themselves was success, was self-service. If he's number one, he's number two. Where does that put me? I mean, number three at most. And I don't like that. And seldom suffering. Okay. So, calling them to himself, now Jesus begins to give them a lesson in service, servanthood, humility. And we'll come back to that in a little bit. But first, let's talk about number two. Okay, we've got our will for ourselves. What is God's will for us? Well, in verse 32 and 34, Jesus predicted his own suffering. And in verse 39, he says, you will suffer. So what is God's will for us? Number one, or letter A, I've called this sporadic suffering. It is God's will for us to suffer. Sporadically. Even the early disciples, James would get his head cut off, but John would live to be most likely a very, very old man. He would, legend would have it, there's different legends, but the most trustworthy ones, it seems. John lives to be a very, very old man. We looked at his letters a couple of weeks ago, remember? He said, dear children. All he would say was, little children, love one another. And he just got really, really old, and he died of a natural death, it appears. Okay? So the suffering is, has always been sporadic for Christians. It's not every single moment of every single day. But suffering will come into your life and my life. And we'll come back to that and we'll see some evidence of that other places. But God's will is then for us to suffer sporadically, thankfully. Also, selective success. Somebody's going to be number one. Somebody's going to be number two. Somebody's. There are going to be times in our life when he blesses us with success. And that's good. And we should be thankful for that. And we want that. That helps us to be happy. And if you're devoting it to the Lord and working hard and following God's directions in Proverbs and the things that the Bible teaches us, you're going to experience some success. And that's good. But selective, as God ordains it to be. And we see that, I think, in verses 35 through 40. Okay, now look at verse 40. Let's continue on in verse 42. Calling them to himself, 
Jesus said, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles, that they lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great, anybody in here wish to become great? Of course you do. Yes, you do. (laughs) I want to be great. If he tells me how to be great, why not? We all want to, I want to be great. Okay, he tells us how to be great. He wants us to be great. I mean, I, I know this can, you can look at it different ways, so, but it's not a bad thing to want to be great. He said that whoever wishes to become great among you, oh, shall be your servant. So I've called this selfless service. When we do it in our own flesh and just our will be done, yeah, then we want to we wanna serve ourselves. But he says here that the way to be great is to be a servant. Selfless service to others. You be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first shall be the slave of everyone. We'll come back to that. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So up above I've got this word that we translate servant. It's diaconus, if you uh, ever hear of a deacon. A deacon is a person in a church, and we see that from Acts chapter 6, a person in a church who does menial tasks. There are some people who just, they'll set up the tables. You don't even have to ask them. They'll just, and, and all of us are supposed to be willing to do menial things that help the other person out, to be their servant. Philippians chapter 2, you know the illustrations we've talked about many times. Have this mindset in yourself, which was in Christ, to be a servant. He said, with humility of mind, let each of you guard, regard one another as more important than himself. So, and look not at your own, just merely at your own things, but also at the things of others. So the illustrations we've used for that and we talk about is to have a dual computer monitor system on your computer. Have your own stuff, your own things, yes, but look at the things of other people as well. And we use the illustration of the Olympic uh, medal stands. Who's on the gold medal stand? This is how we do this. Who's on the gold medal stand? God, alone. Who's on the silver medal stand? Everybody else but me. That's what he's saying. Be a servant to everybody. Now, I'm on the bronze at the most. I should just be content on the floor. If he tells me, come on up here for a bronze, okay. He'll grant me some success. So, selfless service. And then... Look at verse 44. Whoever wishes to be first. Anybody want to be first? Oh, kind of in a way. If you want to be first, here's how you can do it. Be the slave of all. So I've called this, letter D, self-sacrifice. You're giving stuff up. Self-sacrifice. You're pushing the lowest button. Remember the down button in the elevator? You want to go to the top, you will. But you have to push the down button first. Go all the way down like Jesus did, then you'll be exalted at the proper time. So the, the Greek word here is doulos, which is a somebody who is owned by somebody else. 
So just look at verse 44. Let's try to get this. If we get nothing else, let's get verse 44. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be the slave of everyone. So you're the property. We have to become the property and the possession of somebody else. And the only rights we get are the rights that they give us. Now back in Jesus' day, sometimes slaves, we think of slaves as always being mistreated. That wasn't true. Sometimes these household slaves became part of the family. And they were treated very well. Other times not. Okay? But the idea is you're under, you belong to a master or a lord or an owner. And you're, the only rights you're going to get are what they give you. Now, look at verse 44 again. Whoever wishes to be first among you, if that ever crosses your mind, I want to be first, then let him, you shall be a slave of all. Now, that tells me that I'm supposed to serve you and I'm supposed to be a slave to you. My mindset ought to be, if, isn't this what he's saying? Not just that I'm a slave of God, but I'm a slave to you. So, Somebody in this room is first among us. Somebody in this room right now, in God's eyes, only he knows. Somebody in this room is the greatest among us. And how would we know who's that person? Raise your hand if you think you're that person. Good. Because if you raise your hand, you're probably not that person. But somebody is. In God's eyes, there's somebody, and how, how would that be determined according to Jesus? The person in this room who is most servant to everybody else in this room, that's the greatest person here today. The one who is first is the one who has most been able to make themselves a slave of everybody else in the room. Wow. Look at verse 45. Jesus did this. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life, the ultimate sacrifice, as a ransom for many or a payment for many. So when he says for many, it means in place of many, instead, in the stead of many, a substitution for Many. So this is a this is a one for all statement. He's saying that he took the place when he went to the cross, Jesus took the place of many, and that includes you. He paid what many owed. That includes me. He suffered what the many deserved. He endured what the many should have. That's the opposite of what James and John were asking him. Right? So Jesus did it perfectly as our example. That is God's will for your life. If you're a Christian, if you're thinking of becoming a Christian, This is God's will for you. 
He wants you to be happy. He wants you to be successful, but that will be on his terms. He wants you to become a servant and a slave, and by giving up your life, finding true life. Right? Okay. Now, James and John, so they come to Jesus. Look at verse 36 again. Jesus asks them, watch these words. What do you want me to do for you? They ask him, and we'll come to the answer that he gives them. We'll sum it up in just a little bit. I want to juxtapose that. I want to put that right next to, you're in chapter 10. Look at verse 46. Let's read this passage from 46 to 52. This is what attracted me to this passage and drew me here. Because I'm reading it all at once in my devotions. Okay, Now let's come to Bartimaeus. Verse 46, And they came to Jericho, and as he was going out from Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude following, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, now that's redundant, because Bar means son of. So what's his name? Bar Timaeus. And then he explains, because maybe we didn't know that, that that means he's the son of Timaeus. So Timaeus is his dad. Do you think Timaeus's dream for his son was that he would grow up to be a blind beggar? Do you think he asked for that? Do you think when Jesus, when God, when, he was a Jew, so he, it would have been God, his notion of God. When God would ask him, what do you want me to do for you? Do you think Bartimaeus prayed that his son would grow up to be this guy? No. But that's who his son grew up to be. And so Bartimaeus was standing or sitting by the side of the road, a blind beggar. Verse 47. And when he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, so he knew Jesus could do miracles, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, he knew who Jesus was, have mercy on me. People are so weird. Look how the crowd responds. They're following him. Why? Because they know he can do stuff for them. This blind beggar cries out, and what happens? Just like the ten were indignant with James and John, now look how the crowd responds. Verse 48. And many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he couldn't care less. He didn't care about what they were saying. He wanted Jesus to do something for him. And so... He cries out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stopped and said, Call him. Oh, now they're, now they're all about helping. So they called the blind man, saying to him, Take courage, arise. He's calling for you. So casting aside his cloak, the blind man jumps up, came to Jesus, and answering him, Now put your finger right here. Look at what Jesus says to Bartimaeus. What do you want me to do for you? Go back up to verse 36. He had said to James and John, What do you want me to do for you? Same words. Okay? And the blind man said, "Uh, What do you think I want you to do for me? He says, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. I want to be successful. I want to end this suffering. I don't want to be a blind beggar all my life. You're a miracle worker. I've heard of what you can do. 
I want you to do that for me. I want you to receive my sight. How does Jesus answer? Verse 52, and Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And he immediately regained his sight and began following Jesus on the road. So here's my question before we get to point number three. What's the difference between James and John and this blind beggar? What's the difference? Is it that one's request was more noble than the other? And you can probably look at it and say, "Eh, in some ways, probably, yeah. But is that the difference? Is that why he answered differently? Is it that one of them was just being more appropriate? One of them was asking something that was more acceptable? Was the request wrong in one of the situations? Was it? Or was the level of faith deficient in one of the situations? Is it the faith? He said, your faith has made you well. What's the difference? What's the overriding determining factor? And I'm going to argue today it's none of those things. It's none of those things. Let's look at number three. And let's just talk about God's will for answering prayer. I'm not saying that all that I'm not saying either one of them was right. I'm saying they both wanted success. They both wanted something that would serve them. And they both wanted to not suffer. They they wanted that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Certainly James and John didn't get it yet. We can learn from that. We do it. That's not the big thing. God's will for answering prayer. In verse 40, we find the the clue. But to sit at my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Who has prepared it? Who's prepared it? If it isn't Jesus, who is? There's There's only one higher than Jesus in the Trinity. Who is it? Who knows when Jesus is going to return? Jesus didn't when he was on the earth. Who knows? The Father. Okay? And sometimes in our misunderstanding of things and our praying, as James says, sometimes we don't pray rightly. Sometimes God answers, maybe, maybe. For all we know, James is number one and John is two. We don't know that. Jesus didn't know that. He didn't say, no, you can't. He said, I don't know. Only God the Father knows. And therefore, wait. Maybe. So sometimes God says, wait. Look at verse 51 and 52. Go your way. Your faith has made you well. What do you want me to do for you? He healed him. So sometimes God answers, yes. Doesn't he? He answers yes a lot, doesn't he? (laughs) Look around yourself. Look at your life. He answers yes a lot. He answers, well, I'll come back to that in just a little bit. But you know what? Now turn to chapter 14, verse 36 for a second. Go ahead to 1436. I know you know this, but let's just read it. I want you to follow along. Beginning in verse 36. 
Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Does Jesus have faith? Perfect faith. Perfect faith in every way. Uh, And he knows God can do anything. God the Father. Here's his prayer. So maybe God the Father is saying, what do you want me to do for you, son? What does Jesus say? Remove this cup from me. What's God's answer? Sometimes, letter C, sometimes no. But here's the thing. Jesus qualified his request with, yet not what I will, but what you will. So what is the determining factor in whether my prayer is going to get answered? Maybe, yes, or no. What's the determining factor? My faith is the determining factor? That is a necessary element in some situations that I don't even fully understand. But is that the ultimate determining factor of whether God says maybe, yes, or no? What what do you say? No. What is the ultimate determining factor? God's will. Amen or not? If you disagree with me, and and you may, and you may be right, there are Christians who would disagree with me. I know there are Christians who would be angry with me right now because I'm planting in you seeds of doubt so that when you pray, you won't have the kind of faith that will move a mountain. And they would disagree. But here's, here's my logical argument. My biblical argument is this. 1 John 5.14. This is the confidence we have before him. That if we ask anything... According to his will, it will be done for us. So let's just play it out for a moment, just logically. Think about this for a moment. Let's say that Larry wants wants an early spring so that that construction project can progress a little quicker. Okay, let's just say. Let's say Diane wants a late spring so that she can enjoy snowshoeing and, and maybe Larry will take her on a... A trip south. Let's just say. You're praying. You believe God can absolutely bring an early spring. He's done it before. He can do it again. Diane is praying with the same exact level of faith that it's a late spring. What's going to be the determining factor whether it's an early or late spring? I mean, just think about it for two seconds. What's the determining factor? God's will. God has a plan. There is no way that God, think about it. God is waiting to see who comes up with the most faith. Then he'll make his decision on what he's going to do. That's silly. It's ridiculous. So we have to take a teaching, I believe, which I struggle with, a teaching like he says that if you have the faith of a mustard seed, this mountain will move. Well, what is he saying there? And and it just seems that if... Jesus qualified his own prayers with, I will subject myself to your will that I have to do the same thing in every situation. I can still trust him fully. I can still have faith. It doesn't answer all of our questions about the various teachings in the Bible about prayer, but I think this is important for us to understand. 
Where we're gonna, if we don't understand prayer rightly, it's going to cause dysfunction in our prayer life. And we're going to start praying in ways that are not biblical, in ways that are not according to God's will. Is it ever God's will for us to suffer? Turn, just a couple more things and we'll be done. Turn to 1 Peter. Go with me to 1 Peter. If you're able to, I want to show you something. So you go back toward Revelation. If you get to Revelation, go backwards. If you get to John and his letters, go backwards to 1 Peter. So Peter is writing to Jews who have been spread all over the world, scattered out because of persecution. They're being persecuted sporadically, but pretty severely at times. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. He has just said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is just, we have an imperishable inheritance waiting for us. Verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, there's that little Greek word, dei, it's necessary. It's, what does that mean? When you read in the Bible that it's necessary, what does that mean? It means it's God's will, his decreed will. It's going to happen. Even though now, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. That, in order that, the proof of your faith. So it's testing your faith, like James talks about. So sometimes we're going to suffer. Sporadically, thankfully, but we are going to suffer. Look at chapter 3, verse 17. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. So are you going to suffer? Yes. When you do, sometimes it's because you sin, but sometimes it's because God has decreed it. You're going to suffer. It is better if God should will it so that you suffer for what is doing what is right. When you do what is right, you're going to incur some of the persecution of Jesus. Okay? And then finally, look at 419. Therefore, let all those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Trust him. When you're suffering, according to his will. Trust him. In fact, that can be much stronger faith, can't it, than just saying, I want this and I'm just going to believe so hard that God's got to give it to me. So, what did the Holy Spirit say to you as we went through this? What got me going this direction initially was this, this apparent tension between asking God for what I need and want, hearing his teachings about trust in him, just believe, if you just believe, but then seeing, uh, here Jesus answered maybe, here he answered yes, and here God the Father answered no. So I want to bring myself under 
that teaching and that example of Jesus so that I know how to pray. But for some of you, it might be, you may have been convicted by the Holy Spirit that you're kind of functioning up in number one most or all of the time. Maybe you're looking at life and you've got goals and you've got a vision for the way you want life to be. I think of you young people particularly, you young people who maybe haven't been through as much suffering as maybe some of your older counterparts. You know, young person, you've got the whole world ahead of you. You've got dreams for whatever it is, some area of expertise or, you know, sports or whatever it is, you young people. Um, The sooner you learn this, the sooner you're going to be able to, to act like a servant of other people. If I could do basketball over again, if I could do my high school basketball career over again, knowing what I know now, I would try to be the most influential person in my teammate's life and I would not spend so much time worrying about how much I scored, how many rebounds I got, whether I got all-conference or all-state or whatever. Just that self-centered focus that we can have as athletes super easily, really easily. There's some young people in this room that are outstanding athletes. And I'm just, I'm just saying, uh, you're going you're gonna to experience a lot less disappointment. And you're going, even if you, everything goes great for you, perfect for you, and it, which it won't, but let's say it did and it went all the way through, you're going to look back at my age and you're going to say, oh my, if I knew now, if I knew then what I know now, I'd do it so different. Just be a servant to the other person. Let them, make them look good. Work as hard as you can. Be as good. It'll come out. It'll come out. But God's will, for he has you on that team for a specific reason. He's, he has you there to influence the lives of the other people on that team. And this, I'm just talking to you little ones now, but this goes for all of us wherever we're at. So some of us today just need to hear that if I want to be first, I've got to be last. If I want to, to be great in God's eyes, I've got to die to myself and become a servant to other people. That, that's the road to glory. The road up is down. It just is. And it's great and it's so freeing and it's so wonderful to get that, to understand that and apply it. Some of you may, you may have needed some thoughtful uh, input as to how you pray and what your real expectations are. Some of you have needed maybe just a little encouragement in the suffering that you're in right now. You're dealing with some hard stuff. And you need, you need to know that God will answer your prayer. Jesus is saying to you, what do you want me to do for you? But he wants you to come to him humbly and open to God's will for your life. And, and then, but ask him unashamedly believe that he will bless you may not be exactly what you think but it'll be better so there's lots of ways the holy spirit might be applying this to your life so i just invite you to bow your heads with me now would you let's go to the lord in prayer meditate on this passage in which is a ton of stuff but just focus in on what the holy spirit's saying to you